Good morning. How are you this morning? Hanging in there? Tired of shoveling snow yet? Done it twice, some of you have done it three times, half a dozen times, and we're just beginning. Um, we already have in my home the Christmas tree up. Happened yesterday. <laughs> I don't know how it happened. I had um, Ashley Miller come to me this week and was like, do you guys listen to Christmas music you know, before Thanksgiving? And I said, of course we do. <laughs> so that's kind of where we're at mentally, you know. Um, but this time of the year, actually every time this year, we get into um, some form of a series that kind of preps us for the holiday seasons and specifically preps us for one Sunday in particular that we call Generosity Sunday, which is a Sunday every year that comes on our calendar that gives us an opportunity to give towards benevolence. So we get all these requests all year long. It's one of the great things about our church, the things that I love about our church, is that we have a team that is assembled essentially to make sure that as wise stewards, um, we are actually benevolent as a church. We're giving out of the, the gift that God has given us, his generosity. We're giving out of that to the community to meet real needs. So it's one of the things that we celebrate as a church. And, uh, and so we're moving towards that Sunday, which kind of takes us to where we are today, which is kicking off a series called Shoestring. And we're going to talk about budgets and we're going to talk about money. Now, um, as I was uh, reflecting on Shoestring with the team this week, uh, there were a few of the younger members of our team that said, I have no idea what Shoestring even means. Like, what does that mean? And uh, the etymology of the word is that it goes way back to like the traveling salesmen um, and one of the most inexpensive products that they could sell that was always in need was the shoestring. And you could get it for like almost next to nothing, right? It just wasn't worth very much. And that sort of kind of morphed and became known as living on a shoestring or living on a shoestring budget. In other words, I don't have a lot. And if you were to look up shoestring, it has something to do with this. There are a number of definitions, but this is kind of where we're centering the definition on. It's a small amount of money that seems inadequate to the purpose in other words, I have this big dream or this big idea, like generosity, but my amount of money that I'm actually working with on a regular basis seems small in comparison to the purpose that I have for it. It's like it won't go as far as I want it to. I'm living on a shoestring. What's evident to me is that when I read my Bible and I investigate the early church in particular, that the early church experienced something that you and I also experience. This tension between this desire for radical generosity and the capacity that we have financially. Are you with me? That there is, in fact, this tension that we're wrestling with. That we, we don't all have the same capacity, and yet we all have the same objective. And that creates this tension. Like, how do we think about generosity when we're living on a shoestring, and particularly a shoestring budget. And the early church dealt with this same tension. 
And yet as we investigate some of the characters of the early church, what we discover is that they were able to manage this tension in such a way that God literally came alongside their shoestring budgets and produced something extraordinary through their generosity. And as believers and as a church, we want to get in on that. Whatever it was that they had, however it Whatever wisdom they had to manage that tension, that's what we're after in this series as we lead in to Generosity Sunday. So for the next several weeks, we're going to talk a little bit about money. Now, when it comes to the subject of money, nobody talks about it perhaps more than Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus actually is always talking about money. And what's so remarkable about Jesus and what I love about Jesus and probably what you love about Jesus is that Jesus doesn't sidestep or avoid the difficult issues. Uh, Barna put out a research study not too long ago that suggested that one of the reasons people are not going to church, especially in the younger generations, like the 35 and under, that one of the main reasons people are avoiding church in that generation is simply because Well, the church talks about money just a little bit too frequently. And the reality is, is that it's always kind of been a little bit of a private issue and a little bit of an unpopular issue. But Jesus addresses our pocketbooks head on. And he does so, and I think, in a very compelling way. He talks about the secret and he makes it public. And if you're not aware of this, he actually changed the way you and I and our nation talks about generosity. In fact, if you were to pull out a dollar bill, you might see on there, in God we trust. Jesus changes the relationship that we have with money. He says we're stewards, not owners. We're investors, not hoarders. We don't build bigger barns to put our money away in. Actually, money, Jesus says, was made to be spent It was made to be used. Money is a tool. We invest it. I don't have time to camp out here, but I'd love to. I'd love to go back to Genesis and say that before there was the dollar bill, there was the garden. And in the garden, God gave Adam and Eve resources, and they were to invest those resources. They were to cultivate, and as a result, they could be fruitful. In fact, God didn't make the garden perfect. He called it good. They were to take it to perfection. They were to cultivate the raw material that God gave them and produce something. So Jesus talks about money in terms of investment. The question is, are you investing? He talks about money and attaches it to our futures. He says, when it comes to your future, you actually have the potential in this current life to store up for yourself treasure in heaven. He literally has in his mind the ideas of like gold bars or gold coins, and they're stacking themselves up on each other, and they are going to be in a place where the corruption of the world can't get to them, a place called heaven. He says, you can actually store up treasure in heaven. He doesn't avoid it. He moves towards it. And probably one of the most controversial things that Jesus talks about is that we should give to Caesar. What is Caesar's? Christians still struggle with this one to this day, but Jesus says it anyway. He talks about it. Now, for many, money is a source of Many things, right? It's a source of influence. I remember when I was heading towards seminary 
that um, all motives being pure, in fact, grace upon grace, but I remember my grandparents on my wife's side saying, if you go to George Fox, Jonathan will pay your way. That seemed pretty alluring. But if you've ever gotten into a financial deal with a family member, sometimes there's strings attached. I ended up going to Western Seminary instead. Money can be a source of influence, either positively or negatively. Money can be a source of security, right? Safety. It's the sense that, well, why are you going to school? Why are you trying to make the grades? Well, so that I can get more schooling. Why do you want to get more schooling? So that I can make more money. Why do you need to make money? So that I can be secure. It's false sense of security, to be sure. Some of you have made millions and perhaps lost millions. But it's something that people chase after, and money is the source. Money can be a source of pleasure, right? If we view money as the source or our source, and pleasure is the goal, then money can be a means to that end. Many people spend their money in that direction. But for Jesus, he reshapes how we think about money. Jesus believed that money had power to shape our hearts. That this is, in fact, what money can do. That money can shape our hearts. In fact, he says this, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's where your heart is. The question is, where is your treasure? As a kid, I knew exactly where my treasure was. I knew how to answer this question. My dad was a pastor. I was raised in, in his home in Sunday school, and I got my quarters in my pennies, and I would go up to the offering plate like many of you did if you grew up in church, and I'd drop those in, and it wasn't much, but, you know, it was all I could, you know, get out of the, the sofa or get out of the, between the car seats, and I felt good about it, but I also, I felt good about giving because I knew that God was watching. I mean, I had this sense that I was participating somehow with God in his great work. And we encourage kids in this direction. It it detaches money from just this temporary experience, and it does place it in this future experience, this thing that we have with God. But like any of us that grow up, we, after periods of time, end up encountering life, and life comes with events, and events can reshape us. I remember that moment when... When recession broke out, and, and my dad had been going around to churches filling pulpits. There's, trust me, a lot of whole lot of money in that. Uh, very little at all. My mom, in order for that process to take place, um, had a job. She was a waitress, and she made good money at a pretty high-end restaurant. But when a recession hit in the early 90s, she lost her job, and we really didn't have a backup. Financial planning wasn't really part of my parents' plan. And as a result, I remember fear entering into my relationship with money as that tension between generosity and capacity began to grow. And I began to ask a different set of questions. Would there be enough? Like, is there enough money? 
to do the things that we've always done? Would there be enough more specifically to give? The amount that we had seemed inadequate to the purpose. We were living on a shoestring. So today what I want to do is I want to offer some things I've learned along the way that have helped me in my journey as it relates to generosity, specifically as it relates to money. And I want to ask a couple questions, or really I want to answer a couple questions. What is it that gets in the way of generosity? Is it really a lack of capacity? Or is there something else that gets in the way of generosity? And then I want to reframe for us what it actually means to be generous. And I'm really just setting us up for the weeks to come. I just want to kind of build the platform from which to launch. So we're not going to go far today, but, but we're, going to, we're going to try to answer these two questions. Now, here's the thing. The only folks that were just as concerned about money as Jesus were the Pharisees. Actually, they talked about money all the time. It was necessary for their survival like it's necessary for our survival, and they cared a lot about it. But there's a passage in Scripture that sort of takes us into their mindset. And there's a couple things here that are important for us to remember as we get into the text. One is that whenever we encounter a people group in the scriptures, whether it's the disciples or the crowd or the religious leaders, there's a certain sense in which we have the privilege of having a front row seat to Jesus' interaction, and we can find ourselves in that story. There's something about the Pharisees that is in me, in you. There's something here that we might fall prey to or be susceptible to. So in one sense, we really just want to pay attention. Jesus, what is it that you said? What is it that you identified about the Pharisees? But then in addition to that, Jesus actually exposes something about generosity that we want to sink our teeth into this morning. And the story comes to us out of Matthew. Uh, Matthew, of course, was one of Jesus' disciples, and he followed Jesus around, and he encountered all these stories. He compiled them into a list of stories and wrote them down so that we could get in on them today. And he writes a passage about an interaction that Jesus has with the religious leaders. And, of course, the crowd's there, and, of course, his disciples are there, and we're all witnesses to this interaction through the writing, the record that Matthew wrote down for us. And this passage was known as a judgment passage. It's a judgment passage because up at this point in Jesus' ministry, what's taken place is that the religious leaders and the people, by and large, had essentially rejected their Messiah. They had rejected Jesus. And as a result, the unexpected takes place. And the disciples, Jesus' disciples, hadn't really understood this but in this judgment passage, we get a clear picture of what Jesus' response to the people's rejection of him was. And it was to reject them. It was a two-way rejection. And it wasn't a rejection in terms of, you know, I don't love you anymore, or I'm not weeping over you. But it was a reality that he would not be their Messiah as they had anticipated. That that administration, that economy, that direction was over. He instead begins preparing for a cross. 
Rather than being springs of fresh water for Israel, he realizes that a cross awaits him. And a new, a new economy is going to break out. And as a result, he has some very harsh words for those who sat in unbelief. And he says these words by using terms like, woe. Now, I grew up with horses. Woe had its own meaning. It meant stop. It's not at all what it means in the scriptures. You don't ever want Jesus to look at you and say, woe. He comes to the Pharisees, and this is what he says in Matthew 23, towards the end of his ministry, he says, woe to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Hypocrites because, well, he says why. He says, here's one reason you guys are hypocrites, because you tithe mint and dill and cumin, in other words, these were herbs. These were tiny little herbs. These were spices. He says, you incessantly want to inspect the spices around you so that you can tithe. But in the process, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Well, what are those, Jesus? What are the weightier ma- I mean, what could be more weightier than tithing, Right? I mean, tithing was generosity, wasn't it, or was it? He says, this is what you've neglected, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And essentially what he's saying here is he wants them to understand, look, you've you've neglected justice and mercy and being faithful in those two things. You haven't been faithful with the weightier things. There are some things that I'm after you've neglected. And these ought to have been done without neglecting the others. In other words, he's not making the case against tithing here per se. He's making the case against them. Because in an effort to tithe, or as he says later, strain at a gnat and swallow a camel, an effort to make sure that there were no bugs in the spices, that's straining at a gnat, so that they could give the tithe and all of its purity, all the purity rules and rituals that they came up with to make sure they were righteous before God, in an effort to strain after those things, you've actually missed the boat entirely. Really, this probably characterized their entire experience with Jesus, doesn't it? That they were always focused on something that Jesus wasn't quite focused on. They were always a little bit off. Their view was skewed. It's satanic, isn't it? I mean, isn't this what Satan is about? He wants to take a good thing and tell you it's the biggest thing when really what you've missed is the best thing. And so you have misplaced affection. And here he identifies that with the Pharisees, with these leaders, supposed to be leaders of the people, but they had actually missed the boat so what is this justice and mercy Jesus is talking about? Well, well, really, it's, there's a lot going on here. I mean, if you think about it, justice is doing what is right, right? Can we agree to that? That's what justice means. It means to do the right thing. But mercy almost seems like a conflict to doing the right thing. 
Because if you understand an accurate definition of mercy, mercy literally means not giving people what they deserve. In a sense, in our world that is consumed by justice and justice movements, mercy is injustice. I want you to do justice and injustice. Like, what is he talking about here? I want you to both do the right thing, but then I want you, I want you to actually give people, I want you to, to not give people what they actually deserve. I want you to be merciful. Well, for the Pharisees, this got in the way of generosity. This was a hurdle for them to overcome. In a sense, they didn't even really know what mercy was. It was all jumbled up in their minds. And for centuries, religious folks and irreligious alike have tried to figure out how to reconcile justice and mercy. It's a paradox. Justice and then injustice. How do I do those two things? Well, really, it's not an argument against justice. But for centuries, Christians, in order to reconcile these, have pointed in one specific direction. And really, it's changed everything for us. Christians have always reconciled justice and mercy in the cross. If you want to reconcile these, th- these two things, you look, need to look no further than the cross. Because it's in the cross that you experience both justice, divine justice, what is right from God's perspective, and at the same time, the mercy of God. And the two are not actually in conflict. They're not in conflict because of sacrifice. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, it brings these two seemingly opposing concepts, this great paradox, and it defines them correctly. What is Jesus really doing? Well, he's surfacing a problem that the Pharisees had. In a sense, I think what he's saying is he's saying, there is a time in our hearts, in their hearts, when hearts can grow cold. If there is this overemphasis on justice at the expense of mercy, coldness is the result. Legalistic structures are the result, and legalism leads to treachery in relationship. And treachery can lead really to extortion. This is why they were hypocrites. They had begun leveraging justice and defining that apart from mercy, and as a result, it had become out of whack. And as a result, they were actually treacherous and extortionists when it came to their relationship to the people. And mercy, then, really is their problem. What are they going to do with mercy? Well, they felt properly aligned with God because they tithed, but Jesus says what you actually need is mercy. But here's Jesus' point, I think. This principle emerges. Generosity is more than giving. It's giving with God's intent. And God's intent is sacrifice. God's intent is to grow the kingdom through acts of mercy by actually giving people what they by not giving people, excuse me, 
what they actually do deserve. By withholding judgment, by creating space for people to thrive, by giving to those who don't deserve it. Years later, a man named Saul comes onto the scene and he actually experiences the mercy of God. Incidentally, Paul was a Pharisee, wasn't he? He is one of those. He's one of the individuals who stumbled over the justice and the mercy of God. And he stumbled on the road to Emmaus, as a matter of fact, right? What actually happens to him is in the process of going to go kill Christians in an effort to do what is right by his terms, apart from any mercy at all, God encounters him on the road, strikes him down, and radically alters the course of his life, so much so that the mercy of God actually causes Saul to change his name to what? Paul. He goes through an identity crisis, but really it was a salvation experience. Saul becomes Paul because he stumbles over the mercy of God and then becomes one who embraces the mercy of God. And Paul does something interesting. He takes this teaching and he brings it forward into his ministry to the Gentiles. Peter was the apostle to the Jews, but Paul was given the charge of being apostle to the Gentiles. And in his ministry, he actually writes to a group of people living in Rome. We call it the letter to the Romans or Romans. And as he writes to this group of people, they were struggling with exactly the same thing. Initially in Rome, there was a Jewish congregation, and this Jewish congregation, when they heard the gospel, became believers, but then persecution broke out against the Jews, and they disbanded, and in their wake was a Gentile church. And these Gentiles came into this church, uh, and they experienced salvation, and then as the persecution subsided, these Jewish believers wanted to come back into the church, and they wanted to experience the prominence that they had once enjoyed as leaders in the church. After all, salvation was from the Jews. And it's into this context that Paul begins to write And he says, I want you to understand something that the Gentiles, Jews, you who are like me, the Gentiles are now partakers of the very blessings that God once afforded the Jews, once afforded Israel. And this was an act of mercy. And it was just. This thing that God is doing with the Gentiles combines both the justice and the mercy of God. Well, the Jews had the very same problem the Pharisees, the very same problem that Paul had had. They stumbled over the mercy of God. How can God be just and merciful at the same time? How can this take place when it comes to the Gentiles being able to experience all the blessings, except maybe the land blessings, but all the spiritual blessings that the Jews had experienced? And so... Paul sets out to answer this question when he writes the book of Romans, the letter to the church in Rome. They were struggling with the mercy of God. And listen to what he says in chapter 12. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God. I urge you, I urge you to reconcile by the mercies of God. I urge you to participate together as one person by the mercies of God in view of the mercies of God on your life and on the Gentiles' life. In view of that mercy, I I urge you to act like brothers and sisters in Christ. 
I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, and then he reframes what it means to be generous. Listen to this. I urge you to present your bodies, not your pocketbooks, not your wallets. I urge you to take the next step, the next rational, logical step. In view of the mercies of God, that Jesus who reconciled justice and mercy on the cross and then gave this great truth to us in view of God's mercy, I want you to respond appropriately. I want you to present your bodies, and then he goes on and says, as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. This is not just a sacrifice. This is a living and holy sacrifice. Inevitably, Paul must have been thinking to Isaac, who places himself on the altar as a living sacrifice. When it comes to this idea of sacrifice, it's maybe something that we trip up over. We wonder about it. How is it that I'm supposed to be a living sacrifice? Is, is that somehow divine child abuse? That's because we often view sacrifice in a sports context, right? No pain, no gain. It's, uh, it's giving up all the good things so that we can get to the goal. But the Bible reframes sacrifice for us. Actually, from Genesis through Revelation, sacrifice is really attached to friendship or fellowship, koinonia, uh, sacrifice is attached to this idea that I'm going to sit down, I'm going to eat every single night, and every time I eat, I sacrifice an animal. And then I, as a believer, invite Yahweh into my presence around my table as a way of sharing with him in life and telling everybody in my family and anybody who's watching that we are in fellowship, that we are in right standing and right relationship to each other, that we are actually friends with God. This was at the heartbeat of sacrifice from Genesis, and it's the heartbeat of sacrifice here. That if we're really friends with somebody, well, we're going to lay down our lives for them. Isn't this what Jesus says when he pictures this idea? He says, greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friend. Sacrifice. Sacrifice is always attached to friendship. The second picture of sacrifice as it matters to Jesus is in the upper room where he's with his disciples and he picks up the pot and he bends over to wash their feet. And in that encounter, one of his disciples, Peter, stands up and says, Lord, don't wash my feet. You remember that story. Don't step in and do this thing. Peter sort of had this hyper-spirituality, and he was afraid that he wouldn't look humble, you know? So he says, don't do this. And Jesus whispers to him some very powerful words. and uses a terrifying term. He says, Peter. He looks right at him. In front of the other disciples, he says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part. Meros. You have no part in me. In other words, Jesus was using a term that talked about exclusion. If you don't let me wash your feet, if you don't let me do this thing, then you're saying no to me. You're saying no to me, and then you don't have any part in what is going to happen next. Peter, you're going to miss out. 
I'm the Lord, I'm the master, and I am bending over to wash your feet. I'm sacrificing for you, and I'm here to give this as an example for you. Don't resist your Lord, your master. If you want to experience all that I have for you, you have to stay here in this moment with me, and you have to develop what we call in our church culture a yes reflex. Jesus says, I'm going to wash your feet. You say, yes, you're going to wash my feet. Well, Peter understood what Maros meant. He understood that Jesus was saying, Peter, you're going to have to leave the room. You're going to have to separate yourself, and you're not going to be a partaker of what's going to happen next. Because we know that Peter understood that because what Peter says next is, Lord, they don't only wash my feet, but do what? Wash all of me. Wash everything. In a sense, what Peter understood is what Jesus wants us to understand, and that this process of saying yes to Jesus, which was a sacrifice for Peter, that this process actually is a matter of worship, that this is this holy process, which reveals this. God isn't seeking a bunch of admirers. He isn't seeking admiration, but something far more significant, adoration. He's after worshipers, which is essentially what Paul says next. He says, in view of God's mercies, I want you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is acceptable or pleasing to God. And then he follows up with this at the end of verse 1, which is your spiritual service of worship. It's an act of worship. How is it an act of worship? Well, negatively, it's an act of worship because... In an effort to say yes to Jesus, in a sense, we have to commit self-treason. We have to say no to ourself. And that can feel treasonous, can't it? We have our hopes, we have our dreams, we have our finances in view. And we have to say, this doesn't belong to me anymore. That's a treasonous statement. It feels as such. That's really also an act of worship saying no to yourself and then saying yes to God. God, I'm not worshiping myself. I'm actually worshiping you. Positively, it's a relocation of affection. We say yes to God. We're entering into that friendship relationship, that sacrificial, holy sacrifice relationship. We're actually saying, God, what I have, it all belongs to you. My life, it all belongs to you. And we're saying that you have all of me, even my affection, it's all yours, it all belongs to you. I'm no longer focusing on the past. I'm no longer focused on the things that want to own me and control me. Everything I have, everything I am is yours. Everything I have, you have given me, and I want to give it back on the altar of sacrifice. God, because I want friendship, I want relationship. God, I want to remain in the room with you. Now, here's what this means when it comes to money. Money is more than resource. It's relationship. In fact, Jesus would go on to say, you can't serve two masters. He personalizes it. He says, look, you can't serve two masters. Either you'll serve the one or you'll serve the other. He also believes that money is a satisfying relationship. Money can't satisfy. There's really never enough. But generosity can. Generosity, when we give, it feeds us in a whole new way. 
Paul would go on to say to the church in Philippi, he would say, here's my relationship to money. Even though I've lived with a lot and even though I've lived with little, even though I've been rich and even though I've been poor, I have always been content. That's my relationship. I've always experienced the satisfaction of knowing that whatever God has given me in my capacity, I have been able to please him with in totality. Whatever it is that he's given me, I've been able to give. Whatever it is. And what we know was the early church got this. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. The early church got this. They sold their homes. They gave to the poor. They experienced the deep satisfaction of a sacrificial, generous kind of life. Epaphras was one of Paul's colleagues and friends. He gave his life to be generous. Paul gave his life to be generous because they believed in a generous God. They were living sacrifices. And Paul wraps up with this idea in the second part of his thought in verse 2. He says, now listen to this. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And I want to end with this idea. God is out to prove something through your generosity. You see, when it comes to capacity, he will either give you riches or he'll give you poverty, but within that capacity, you can find the secret to contentment because if you attach whatever capacity you have been given to his heart, to his mission, not only will it reshape yours, but God will show up and he will prove that that process of letting go what never belonged to you to begin with is his good and perfect will for your life. It's in that process deep satisfaction comes and the blessing of God continues. Which leads us to this question. What example will we follow? What will we leave behind? And how will our relationship with money shape our hearts. One of the most fascinating experiences of my life, the most interesting, deep experiences of my life, is years after that recession, years after we encountered what it meant to go without. And by the way, there were moments where we wondered if there would be any food left over, or if we would have lunches to go to school with. We knew, we knew for several years, what it was like to live without. I asked my parents, somewhere along the line, I just assumed that we had like stopped giving to the Lord financially. I just assumed that, like, where was the money? And I asked them, I said, remember those days? Did you give to the Lord during those periods of time in your life? I'll never forget them saying, oh, of course. Of course we gave. We gave sacrificially to the Lord. You know, I never went without a meal in that home. And the Lord proved that his will is good and acceptable and perfect. I'm going to transition into communion. I'm going to invite you to go ahead and stand as we sing a song. And 
As the band leads us, we have communion three different or four different locations, the front and back. I'd encourage you to participate. And I want to guide your thoughts to the idea that what is the appropriate response to the mercy of God this morning in your life? What is that? And as you consider that, consider the cross.